Now, hopefully you've got your Bible in front of you, and if you like these things, then there's also a sermon outline on the back of the uh, service order. You'll find that uh, there. If you'd uh, like to follow along, you'll see where I'm going. Uh, Can you believe that it's uh, December tomorrow? And can you believe that Christmas is only just over three weeks uh, to go? Uh, There's lots to do. Um, there's lots to do for me being a vicar I normally only work one day a week and Christmas is of course my busy time that's what everybody says to me it's your busy time of the year isn't it vicar well yes it is Uh, and it is a busy time but I've got to say I'm really looking forward to it I love Christmas but I'm more and more aware that not everyone does indeed a recent survey revealed that for many Christmas is a huge disappointment already it's predicted to be a disappointing Christmas on the high street Uh, you're know about that. The economic downturn trade is slow and sales are sluggish. But that's not all. People uh, get disappointed by many things at Christmas apparently. Uh, Christmas presents are often a huge disappointment, as are Christmas movies, if that's your thing. And for some, simply the whole Christmas experience is a disappointment. People look forward to it for so long and prepare for it for so long and then it is gone in a flash. Uh, People look forward to spending time with their family And in no time at all, they're winding them up and grinding them down. It seems for many, a British Christmas, a Christmas devoid of the Christ, is a microcosm of life itself. It is a huge disappointment. Life is a disappointment for many. Even for the most successful, life often leaves a sense of feeling, so what? I dug this out, knowing that... uh, Andrew is going to be leading the, uh, the service. Barry Humphrey's autobiography, the uh, alter ego of, um, of Dame Edna Everidge. It's one of the greatest things that's ever come out of uh, Australia, of course, Andrew. Uh, we're very grateful to Australia for Dame Edna. Um, but I love these opening words in... Um, sorry, that was unnecessary, wasn't it? I love these opening words in uh, Barry Humphrey's autobiography. I always wanted more. First words in the, in the biography, autobiography. I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or unquestioning love. Of course, I've had more than my fair share of most of these commodities, but it always left me me with a vague feeling of unfulfilment. Where was the rest? There's always something missing, even when we're successful. Now, over the next few weeks, as we look at these early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we should discover that Christmas, a real Christmas, a Christmas with the Christ at its heart, should address the so what in life, and indeed not add to life's knack of disappointing. We see that here in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, although I wouldn't be at all surprised if in the reading earlier in the service, even the reading itself left you with a sense of, Disappointment. You see, there are some great openings to books, aren't there? Here's one. Does you recognise this? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Do you recognise it? Of course you do. It's the opening sentence of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. There are some brilliant, terrific beginnings to classic works, but at a glance, this doesn't seem to be one of them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. And so on. 
And so it goes on for 42 generations and Gwyneth, you did magnificently to read them all. Let me ask you, as the list was read, were you riveted or did you find yourself drifting off? Where were you a third of the way through? Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. We could have carrots with the roast today. <laughs> Abijah, the fa- <laughs> Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. But I haven't got anything for pudding. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Well, hang on, there is an apple strudel at the bottom of the freezer. Is that how it went for you or something like that? Frankly, this list reads like a telephone directory and you might be tempted to think that the only pleasing thing about it is that it's not as long as a telephone directory. It really doesn't seem to be the best way to start a book. Come to that, it doesn't really seem to be a great way to start the New Testament. Why did the people who compiled the Bible not put John 1 at the beginning? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now that's an exciting start. All we've got is a long family tree. Having said that, in recent years there has been an increasing interest in genealogies, hasn't there? Uh, A friend of mine researched his family tree on the internet and discovered that he's related to William the Conqueror. I'd love to be related to someone like that. The BBC has a series on television called Who Do You Think You Are? Have you seen that? It's about celebrities tracing their family tree with the help of expert, expert archivists. I saw a snippet of the, snow, of, the snow, of the show when Esther Ranson was the celebrity. If I remember rightly, she discovered some um, sad situations in her family and a few grisly, gruesome facts about her family that she'd rather not have discovered. Family trees can be interesting, and this one is no different. I'm reminded of an interview with Billy Graham, the American evangelist. He was uh, being interviewed by David Frost some years ago and talking about the inspiration of the Bible. David Frost mentioned, quote, the endless genealogies in the Bible that so-and-so begat so-and-so. And then he said, Billy, you can't say that these lists of names are inspiring, to which Billy required, I find those lists of names absolutely fascinating. Only he said it with an American accent. And, and Billy was right. If you, if you will stay with me, uh, you are in for an absolutely fascinating 20 minutes as we look through these opening verses in Matthew's Gospel. Verses that I would guess many have never seriously considered. And even those of you, many of you who are regular Bible readers perhaps have never read through. You've uh, looked at verse 1 and then you've jumped to verse 18. Well, if you uh, are still with me on the uh, handout, on the, the outline, here's the first point. The genealogy tells us who Jesus is. See, the reason the New Testament doesn't begin with John's Gospel and does begin here is so that we know that this isn't the beginning of the story about Jesus Christ. It's to tell us that we can't fully understand who Jesus is unless we have our Old Testament in our hands. At a a Christianity Explored course that I was running uh, some years ago in another church, uh, in the Christianity Explored course we always get people to read through Mark's Gospel. And somebody having read through the Gospel said to me, um, why is Jesus called the Son of David? Who is this David? Well, never mind Christianity Explored, it's the question we should ask when we listen to the Christmas story. For at Christmas we read that uh, that Joseph was the son of David and that Jesus was born in the town of David. Jesus' connection to David is quite clearly a very crucial, uh, important detail. And that's how Matthew begins. Chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. 
Uh, Indeed, the structure of the genealogy itself reinforces that and also adds another key element. And so see how Matthew summarises the genealogy in verse 17. He says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now do you see it? These are the three things we're to note from this genealogy. Abraham, David, the exile. Matthew reinforces it in verse 17. Firstly, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham, of course, was the father of the Jewish nation. Way back in Genesis chapter 12 that uh, Gwyneth read for us uh, earlier in the service, there's no need to turn it up, I put the uh, reference on the outline there. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that all nations, that all peoples on earth, would be blessed through him, through his line. And so as we read Matthew chapter 1, this is explosive stuff. As Matthew writes his genealogy, he says Jesus is the promised one, the one who comes from Abraham's line and the one through whom all peoples will be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be favoured by God, to be in the right with God, to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. That was the relationship we were made for, to be in and to know what it is to be in sweet fellowship with the one we were made for. Now that is actually what everyone in this world longs for. Now look, I'm not naive. I know as well as you that the vast majority of people are not interested in knowing God. But just look at people's lives and you will see that everyone who walks this planet longs for this blessing. It is, even though they don't know it, the deep longing of their heart. Look at how people live their lives and you will see they are looking for this blessing. Uh, The Advent singer sang it for us earlier, no one but you, Lord, can satisfy the longing in my heart, but when people have turned away from him, they need this longing to be satisfied, and so they look elsewhere for it. People then are looking, but they're looking in the wrong place, but they're looking for it all the time. Every human being on the planet longs to be loved. They could know the love that the Father gives that is spectacular and unconditional. But when they have rejected that, they they look for it somewhere else. We long for someone to assure us that we're okay, that we're special, that we're wanted, don't we? We look for it from our parents and if we don't get it from our parents, we will look for it from a lover, from a spouse or from a friend. And if you don't get it from someone close to you, you'll try and get it from professional success, from your colleagues' acclaim, from your achievement at work. You've got to get it from somewhere, from someone looking at you and saying, you're great, I accept you, I love you. Everybody has to have that. Because we were made to have it, but not just from anyone. We were made to have it from the God who loves us. We were made to have that blessing, his smile of approval. And if we reject him, we will look for it for someone else. And when we don't have it from him, we look for it and look for it, but it never really satisfies. C.S. Lewis, in a number of his writings, points out that even when we don't have problems, we are seeking for a blessing in the acclaim and love and approval of other people. But C.S. Lewis points out that it never arrives or it never actually sticks when it comes from someone else or something else. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. This is a quote from Mere Christianity. 
Most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. We have longings. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up the subject that excites us. Longings, though, that no marriage and no travel and no learning will ever really satisfy. Those things can never fully deliver because we were made for a very special blessing, the blessing of the smile of God's approval. And here, Matthew is saying, you need to look no further. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one in whom that blessing can be known, indeed the only one in whom that blessing can be known. And it's a blessing for all nations. Uh, See, again, that's what it said in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, This blessing will come to all nations, for all peoples. That was God's announcement to Abraham. All peoples will be blessed through your line. See, God has always had all people in view. The gospel has never been for a small minority. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you will know that the Jews were in danger of missing that, that they thought it was just for them, and we are in danger of missing it as well. Are you like me? I am often tempted to look at people people I know, and think, they're not the religious type. They wouldn't be interested. There's no point in telling them about Jesus. Do you think that about people? Well, listen, this gospel is for everyone because everyone needs this blessing. Everyone's looking for it, actually, whether they know it or not. And so this is an explosive beginning to a book. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the one that everyone needs because everyone needs this blessing. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Secondly, you see, verse 1, Jesus is the son of David. That is King David. King David, of course, was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was a king who was given a promise that one from his line would be king forever. I've again put it on the outline there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. It says there that one of David's line will be king forever, ruling over an everlasting kingdom. And so in these opening verses, Matthew is saying, he's announcing that Jesus is that king, the one we've waited for, for all these years, a thousand years since that promise. Jesus is the son of David, the king who will be king forever, the king of all, the ruler, the ruler over the whole entire universe. It's explosive stuff, isn't it? And again, is that not something we all need? We need a king because we all are longing for security and that is what a king gives us. As we read our newspapers today, we've been reminded in our prayers, we'll be reminded of people who need security all over the world. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, people need security. In Zimbabwe, people long for security. In India, in Mumbai, people long for security. In Aressa, people long for security. In Afghanistan, in Iraq, and we could go on and on. But also here in Britain, with the credit crunch and an economic downturn gripping this nation, people are worried. We look for security in the things we have around us, in the size of our bank balance. We long for security. 
Well, we look for security in the people around us, don't we? Uh, last weekend we were driving through a, a tree-lined country road just as the light was fading. And uh, we had the children in the back of the car. And as I was driving, it was a bit eerie, a bit, you know, a bit eerie as it, it sort of the, the light faded going through this, this country road. And I suddenly heard a little voice from the back. Daddy, I'm scared. I became all macho. It's all right. I'll look after you. Because that's what daddies are supposed to do. But you see, it just is a little example. We need to feel secure. As we grow up, we learn that we have to fend for ourselves. We can't look to mummy and daddy anymore. And so we look for security in all sorts of things. And often in Britain, it's in money and finance, isn't it? If I've got enough money in the bank, I'll be all right. I've got it tucked away for a rainy day. That's why the credit crunch and the global economic turndown has had such an impact on so many, whether people have lost their jobs or not, whether they've lost money through the collapse of an Icelandic bank or not, whether they have shares in an unstable, in an unstable company or not, people are feeling that their security has gone. It's shaky. We long for security, don't we? Why? Again, it's not a bad thing. It's because we were made to be under the care and security and comfort of the king. The king of kings who loves us and who can give us that security. But of course, if we turn away from him, then we'll look for it elsewhere. Matthew says Jesus is that king. You can be completely secure with him because he is the son of David. He is the king who will rule forever. He is the king whose kingdom will never end. Not by a terrorist, not by death, not by an economic downturn, not by illness. Come into his kingdom and you have total security beyond the grave for eternity. Jesus is the son of Abraham, Jesus is the son of David and thirdly, Jesus is the end of the exile. Uh, the exile is one of the great biblical themes. Uh, there is a huge amount of the Old Testament that is written either leading up to or through or after the exile. It describes the time when the people of Israel were ejected from the land to live as aliens and strangers in Babylon. And although it was about them being ejected from the promised land to Babylon, it's not actually primarily about the land. The exile primarily is about Israel's relationship with their God. So again, I put the reference on the handout, or on the uh, outline. 2 Corinthians chapter 17 describes the exile as, this is the key point, being removed from God's presence. To be in exile then is to be out of the presence of the God that I was made to be in the presence of. Being in exile then is to be away from home. Being in exile is to be away from everything that feels right. Well, we've seen it many times in these last years. On the television news we have pictures beamed into our living rooms of dear people who have been displaced by war. And as you have seen those people, do you see the pain on their faces? The pain of everything being taken away, everything they know being stripped away from them. See, to be in exile is to have that sense that we're not where we should be. And that's what people feel all over the world, whether they're out of their country or not, because they're in exile with God. It is to have that sense that we don't quite fit. 
that longing inside that I want to be back home, wherever home is. That's how it is when we're away from the Lord. As Matthew wrote his Gospel, the exile had ended in one sense in that the Jews were back in the promised land, but it hadn't ended in that they were not yet back in relationship with God. And so Matthew announces that in Jesus the exile has ended. This is the news that everyone needs to hear. Because everyone feels this sense of exile. Oh, they won't say that they're exiled from God, but it's what people are looking for. Watch people's lives. People are doing everything they can to be accepted. We long for acceptance. So we go to great lengths to wear the right clothes in order to be accepted. It happens as teenagers, but it happens as adults as well. Do I look all right for the party tonight, darling? We go to great lengths to be part of things. We don't want to be out of place. We want to have a place called home. We want people to embrace us, don't we? Why? Because we're out of relationship with the God who gives us all of that. And we're looking for it elsewhere. In Matthew chapter 1, the deep longings of our heart are being addressed and we find that Jesus answers them all. The genealogy then tells us who Jesus is. Secondly, the genealogy tells us what the gospel is. Look, there are other genealogies in the Bible and there's a little hint as to how to read them. Uh, We're meant to spot the patterns in the genealogy, as we've done already, and then we're also to spot the breaks in the patterns. So as we read this genealogy, most of the time it simply says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And so it goes on. And then, now and again, the, the pattern breaks. And Matthew does that quite deliberately to make us sit up and listen and take note. Oh, why is, why is that changed? And so there are a number of breaks in the pattern. I'm just going to show you four. Four obvious breaks in the pattern that all concern women. Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then halfway through verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba that is. So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. And what do we learn from this? First note that all these four, all four women were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. That tells us that the gospel is for all. Tells us that Jesus had Gentile blood running through his veins. Isn't that amazing? The gospel is for all nations. It's for all peoples. Now as we read through the Christmas story, we're meant to see that. So do you know how Matthew's Gospel goes? In chapter 2, who are the first people to visit the newborn king? It's interesting, Matthew doesn't mention the shepherds, that comes in Luke's Gospel. He doesn't mention the shepherds coming to see the newborn baby in the stable. The first people Matthew mentions are Magi from the East, Matthew chapter 2. The Gentiles. Gentiles acknowledging Jesus as king. Son of Abraham, son of David. These four women then were Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. But as we look at these four women, notice this, the gospel is for sinners. Who would you like to have in your family tree? You know, I told you my friend's got um, William the Conqueror. I'd quite like to have a king in my family tree. 
Um, Henry V, perhaps. Who would be your king? And a hero or two. I'd like to have a hero or two. Uh, Thomas Cranmer. Nelson. Bobby Moore. People like that. Well, look who's in Jesus' family tree. Think about these three of these four women. Verse 3, Tamar. Genesis 38 tells her sorry story. Do you remember it? She posed as a prostitute to trap her father-in-law Judah into giving her a child. She's there in Jesus' family tree. It's a shock, isn't it? Verse 5, Rahab. She was the prostitute who hid the spies who went into the promised land. But she was a prostitute. She's part of Jesus' family tree. And verse 6, Bathsheba. Well, the amazing thing about Bathsheba is Matthew doesn't even call her Bathsheba. No, there in verse 6 he describes her as Uriah's wife. Matthew quite deliberately reminds us of her sorry past. She wasn't King David's wife. Well, not at first. Not when she fell pregnant with Solomon. No, she was Uriah's wife. Do you remember the story? She committed adultery with King David and her involvement with King David resulted in the murder of her husband Uriah. Here's a dark chapter in Jesus' family tree. What an encouragement. The gospel is for sinners. And not just for, you know, ordinary sinners. This is for really bad sinners. Tamar, posed as a prostitute and committed incest. Rahab, her job was prostitution. Bathsheba, adulteress, whose unfaithfulness led to the murder of her husband. That's the gospel we believe. It's the line of Jesus. The genealogy tells us who Jesus is. The genealogy tells us what the gospel is. And because of that... Thirdly and briefly, the genealogy tells us who we are. See, as we look at these four women, two things should happen. Two things will happen. One, people who think they're too bad for Jesus should realise they're not. See, is that you? Do you have a past? Do you have a past that is really shameful? Are there skeletons in the cupboard that maybe only your nearest and dearest know? Maybe even they don't know. You've got a past. I have a past. I've got a terrible past. I'm not going to tell you about it. Caroline knows, but I'm not going to tell you. But believe me, it is bad. Bad enough that if some of you knew, you might not come back next Sunday. This genealogy tells me the gospel is for people like me with a past. Do you think you're too bad for Jesus? Look at Tamar. Look at Rahab. Look at Bathsheba. You're not too bad. You can come to Jesus. And you can know the blessing of being right with God, of being secure under the King, of coming home and being accepted, no matter what you've done. The genealogy tells us Jesus has a place for everyone, even those who think they're too bad, especially those who think they're too bad. And then secondly, the genealogy will do something else. It will shock religious people. See, would you be shocked if I told you we had a prostitute in the congregation? Or a murderer? How would you feel about those people being in your home group? They come into your home each week to drink your tea, 
and eat your cake and read the Bible with you. It's a bit of a test reading this genealogy, isn't it? How much do we believe the gospel is for everyone? How much do we believe that anyone can be forgiven? How much do we believe that the gospel is about grace, about being freely forgiven? Not about my performance or my goodness or my achievements or my church attendance or my morality or my social standing or my career or anything else you want to add to that list, but about grace. There will be some people in church here, some church people here, who are really shocked by this genealogy, or at least shocked by its implications. Let me drive those implications home as we close. Think of the issues in the news right now, this week. The terrible story this week of the trial of a man at Sheffield Crown Court, of a man jailed for perpetually raping his two daughters and fathering nine children by them. It is a terrible and wicked thing to do. And it is absolutely right that that man has been sentenced and punished. But can you accept that if he truly repents and believes that Jesus will accept him? Think of Tamar. Committed incest. Or the man who had another man murdered so that he could have his, uh, 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 this other man's wife. It is right that he is sent down. But can you believe, can you accept that he, if he truly repents and believes that Jesus will accept him? Think of David and Bathsheba. Think of the news story that in order to stop the trafficking of women, the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, wants to make it illegal for a man to pay for sex with a woman controlled by a pimp. And I know there's been a lot of debate about that, how that is even possible. I'm going to say something that will probably uh, be full of uh, all sorts of things that you will say isn't possible, but I think all prostitution should be illegal because it is against God's law. I know there's all sorts of reasons why people say that shouldn't be the case, but that's where I stand. I think of the families that have been shattered and broken because daddy visited a prostitute, whether she was controlled by a pimp or not. I think of the wives who have been infected with sexually transmitted diseases because their husbands slept with prostitutes. And when you think of those things, you ask yourself, can a prostitute find a place in God's family? Think of Rahab. This genealogy tells us what the gospel is. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for sinners, for really bad people. And when we think about that, it tells us who we are. Because if we can't accept this gospel, the gospel that has Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and people like that in it, then maybe we're not yet in in Jesus' family tree ourselves. Because that is the gospel. And if we're not in in, in Jesus' family tree ourselves, then that is desperate. Because this gospel, this Jesus, gives us the blessing that we long for deep down. The security that we need. And it gives us the acceptance of coming back to the Father that we all crave. Let's pray.